any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how capitalism is the real force driving vaccine inequality on the world. Also going to be touching on the ongoing attacks on the Castillo government in Peru, along with other developments in Latin America, and also about how Brazil may be facing its own January 6th. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your call. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Stephen Gowans, the author of Traitors, Patriots and Empires, the story of Korea's fight for freedom. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And Stephen, you know, one of the starkest realities that has emerged under the global coronavirus pandemic is the way that the wealthier nations uh, have more access to vaccines and other forms of treatments to address the vaccine than a lot of the poorer countries. And it's just a, a deep disparity in inequality that is quite literally manufactured. And this was pointed out in a recent editorial by the British Medical Journal, which called this vaccine inequality a, quote, moral scandal. And they said in part that vaccine preventable deaths and illnesses are occurring across Africa, Asia and Latin America at an unprecedented speed and scale, adding that let us be clear what is causing these deaths a free market, profit-driven enterprise based on patent and intellectual property protection combined with a lack of political will. Now, the British Medical Journal doesn't say that capitalism is really the cause of vaccine inequality. It doesn't use that word. But I mean, it seems to me, Stephen, that this is basically what they're describing. And you just published a piece about this on your website, gallons.blog, entitled The Moral Scandal of Vaccine Inequality Has a Name, Capitalism. And you note uh, how these capitalist-driven disparities are uh, really mainly centered around two major causes. And I was hoping you could sort of help us understand that within the framework of capitalist production, how is that driving the uh, vaccine inequality that's happening on the world stage? Right. So the mRNA and the viral vector technologies, which are used in the Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca vaccines, these were developed in publicly funded university and government labs. And then they were licensed to an oligopoly of pharmaceutical companies, a small group, which has monopolized production in the West anyway, and has created an artificial shortage. And when I say an artificial shortage, I mean that the supply of vaccines would be much greater if these publicly funded technologies were shared with manufacturers around the world. That would greatly boost the production of vaccines and it would accelerate their rollout to low and middle uh, income countries. At the moment, about 
what, over 50% of the populations in the rich countries are vaccinated, while very small percentage, maybe one or 2% in poor countries has been vaccinated. And that's largely because there is a shortage of vaccines, an artificial shortage. But, you know, in as much as these technologies aren't being shared, and given that there's a shortage of vaccine doses, the rich countries have been able to buy up the restricted supply by outbidding everyone else. Um, and they've been able to buy more than they need. So Canada, for example, has purchased enough doses to vaccinate its citizens five times over. And you can ask the question, why would Canada need to have that many vaccines uh, at a time when poor countries have no vaccine? Britain has secured enough doses for four times its population. The United States has stockpiled 100 million doses, which are intended to be used as booster doses in the fall, absent any evidence that they're needed. And meanwhile, despite all of this stockpiling, less than 6% of Africans have even received a single dose. So recognizing that there's this vast disparity in the world, over 100 countries, I mean, the real international community, not this fake international community of the United States and its you know, it's, it's allies, this 100 countries have proposed a temporary waiver on intellectual property protection of COVID-19 vaccine technologies, which would allow these technologies to be shared with manufacturers around the world to boost the supply so that more doses can get out to poor countries. You know, on top of saving lives and reducing illness, this would help curb the circulation of the virus and we don't want the virus to circulate because the more it circulates, the greater the chance that new variants will emerge and possibly variants that can evade the current vaccines. But, you know, if you look at this from the perspective of capitalism, the vaccine makers like this current arrangement. The arrangement may be, um, you know, disadvantageous for humanity, but it's not disadvantageous for the vaccine uh, makers. I mean, a shortage of vaccine doses allows them to sell vaccines at monopoly prices. Uh, it allows them to, as the British Medical Journal said, make a killing, both figuratively in terms of profits, but also literally in terms of preventable deaths. They also like the new arrangement or the current arrangement because, you know, new variants and vaccine escape are lucrative business opportunities because they promise revenue streams well into the future. Every new variant will mean you have to tweak the, the technology or the vaccines and produce new vaccines to produce boosters, uh, as is going to happen. Um, so this is a very lucrative and promising a business opportunity for this vaccine manufacturing oligopoly. And they have no interest in sharing technology with other manufacturers. I mean, the other manufacturers would become their competitors, encroaching on their current and future profits. And the vaccine makers and their political allies, that means they're putting their interests above ending the pandemic, above the interests of the rest of us. Yeah. And I want to reiterate that point you just made, Stephen, the fact that 
open access to vaccines and really placing the interest of literally global public health over that of super profits would be an obvious benefit to humanity, but it would be a detriment to the pockets of these corporations. So that means that, you know, big pharma only stands to gain from uh, this cycle of one variant of the pandemic tapering off while a new one rises up. So that's going to mean more vaccines that are needed and more money to be made from that point. And there's another aspect of this that I really think people should be clear on, particularly in the United States, Stephen, and that's the relationship between the government and these pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there are different government officials, including people who are inside the Biden administration right now, who have um, direct connections, relationships, and investments in these pharmaceutical companies. So I was hoping you could, could tell us some about that and how those relationships impact this vaccine access question. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not only the uh, people who are making decisions within the uh, pharmaceutical companies that are putting their interests above ending the pandemic. It's also the shareholders. And who are the shareholders? Well, as it turns out, a number of shareholders have very high level positions in the Biden administration. For example, Eric Lander, who's the White House science advisor, he holds up to $1 million in shares of BioNTech, which is Pfizer's vaccine partner. He recently proposed a pandemic preparedness plan, which is based mainly on providing public funding to vaccine manufacturers like Pfizer to stockpile vaccines for use against potential pandemic pathogens. Uh, then there's Susan Rice, Biden's domestic policy advisor. She holds up to $5 million in shares in Johnson & Johnson, which makes the, the J&J vaccine. She has $50,000 in shares in Pfizer. Anita Dunn, who until recently was Biden's senior advisor, is a managing partner and founder at a firm called SKDK, which does public relations and advertising work for Pfizer. Uh, a number of senior figures in the State Department work for Madeleine Albright's Albright Stonebridge Group, which counts Pfizer as a top client. And then Operation Warp Speed, you know, the government program to speed development of vaccines, was headed up by figures who had long-standing connections with the pharmaceutical industry and senior executive positions. So the political lead is interlocked with the pharmaceutical industry and is benefiting from uh, vaccine inequality uh, as much as the senior executives of those of the pharmaceutical industry and the vaccine manufacturers are benefiting. Yeah. And actually, I wanted to go back because you 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 noted this this Albright Stonebridge group, a consulting firm, like you say, that was founded by Madeleine Albright, former secretary of state um, of which uh, Pfizer is a top client. And I want to name just a few of these uh, senior officials that 
are among its former employees. We have uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Victoria Newland, the Undersecretary of State for uh, Political Affairs, uh, Wendy Sherman, who's the Deputy Secretary of State. I mean, the list, it goes on. I mean, it, it's a goodly number of uh, uh, people here. And there's a point that I really want to make. For our listeners, because these connections between big pharma and the government is a part, I think, of the fodder for conspiratorial thinking around issues of vaccine and the pandemic itself, because people could look at this, these these real connections between uh, corporations and the government and use that to support this idea that uh, the pandemic is either exaggerated or completely fabricated for the sake of social control and profits. But in reality, what has happened is these elements have seized upon a very real pandemic to uh, continue to generate these super profits and literally benefiting off of sickness and death. And I think it's important to make that distinction and have sort of a a clear headed analysis of what we're talking about here. And, you know, and that actually leads me to my next question, Stephen, when we talk about critical solutions to this problem to vaccine access inequality on a global scale. And we began by speaking on this uh, editorial from the British Medical Journal. And it seems to me that their analysis of the problem is pretty accurate. But some of their proposed solutions don't really seem to get at the root of the problem itself. And as I mentioned, you know, they don't actually use the word capitalism and therefore in their proposed solutions don't really take aim at the capitalist system itself as being a part of the solution. And I mean, you know, I suppose that that's maybe not really that surprising, but in reality, Stephen, it seems that if what we're talking about is having the masses of people on the planet, having the access to these vaccines, that they need really as just part and parcel of a broader plan, I feel like I should say, because if we look at countries that have more successfully gotten a handle on the pandemic, like, you know, Vietnam and China, vaccines were an important aspect of how they addressed the pandemic, but it was only a part of a broader public health program right, to take care of people in a number of ways to uh, uh, help uh, handle this. But it seems, Stephen, that really we have to address ourselves to the questions of the contradictions of capitalism itself and how that plays a central role in uh, the whole pandemic issue, it seems. Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, capitalism shapes the response to the, the pandemic and, you know, the pandemic bec- becomes a, you can regard it if you're um, a business person, if you're a capitalist as a business opportunity. So now that a crisis arises, how do you use that crisis uh, to generate profits? Um, and that shaped the way in which strategies to pandemic management were developed. I mean, one of the the most effective, what has been demonstrated as the most effective pandemic management approach is public health and social measures, you know, test, trace, quarantine, the the measures that have been used very successfully by China and successfully, for the most part, uh, by Vietnam. 
but those aren't the measures that were chosen by the rich countries. The rich countries chose another method, which was largely one of relying on vaccines, um, not using public health and social measures as strenuously as other countries did, with the consequence that those countries, the rich countries, have had far more deaths per million than China has. China is just in a class of its own in terms of minimizing the impact of the pandemic on public health. But in choosing the vaccine strategy, you sacrificed human lives um, for opportunities <laughs> to produce vaccines uh, and reap these large uh, revenue streams and, and terrific profits and to make a killing as the British Medical Journal says, both uh, in terms of profits, uh, figuratively and literally in terms of preventable deaths. Um, one thing, though, uh, we haven't mentioned was the whole idea of vaccine imperialism, which is, right. you know, by monopolizing the world supply of vaccines, the rich countries make the poor countries dependent on the rich countries for donations of vaccine dose, doses. And that just adds one more form of leverage the rich countries have over the poor countries to keep them pliable and open to exploitation. So Canada, with its five times more vaccine doses than it needs for its population, can use vaccine donations to extract concessions from, say, countries in South America where you have Canadian mining companies exploiting those, those countries. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about attacks on the socialist government in Peru and other developments inside Latin America. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Zoe Pepper Cunningham, a journalist with People's Dispatch. Zoe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And Zoe, it appears that the right wing attacks on the newly inaugurated socialist government of Pedro Castillo in Peru of the Peru Libre Party continue. And uh, this seems to have uh, uh, definitely manifested recently with the uh, resignation of Foreign Minister Hector Bahar, which I believe uh, took place about uh, a week or so ago as the result of what really seemed to be a kind of uh, a right wing smear campaign. And the social movements of ALBA actually uh, released a statement uh, talking about this and really voicing um, the fears of a coup in uh, Peru that may be underway in a sense. Now, of course, Castillo in his uh, electoral defeat uh, was able to overcome his chief rival, uh, Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of former uh, Peruvian dictator Alberto 
Fujimori. And I mean, it seems like there's really a lot at stake. I mean, uh, there's uh, an element inside Peru that doesn't seem like it, it ever um, really acknowledged the legitimacy of Castillo's uh, victory there and therefore don't see him as the legitimate president. And so I'm wondering what your feelings are, Zoe, about what really is feeling like a slow moving coup happening inside Peru right now. Definitely. I mean, I think you pointed out a lot of key points. Um, if we remember the first round of, uh, you know, the presidential elections in Peru, it was predicted to be a five way tie between you know, candidates from the far right, candidates from the left. And, you know, Pedro Castillo was never considered that he would by any, you know, not only not win, but he wasn't even considered in the top five, you know, candidates in these elections. And, you know, he came in from the, you know, for, for some people, he came in from behind and kind of, you know, got a lot of, you know, won the first round of the elections and then, you know, won the second round. But I think people, you know, the far right was really not, expecting this. And I think a lot of conservatives were taken kind of on the back foot because they weren't really, they were preparing at best to deal with a liberal government. And, you know, what Pedro Castillo represents for the Peruvian sectors who, uh, you know, enjoyed, you know, not only, um, you know, very favorable uh, policies in terms of um, foreign direct investment, in terms of, you know, Tax, you know, friendly tax policies for corporations and all other kind of policies to kind of ensure the extraction of wealth from the Peruvian people to foreign corporations to local um, corporations. But uh, you know, they right now when they see this government that plans to kind of put all that in in danger, a government that's called for nationalization, a government that wants to rewrite the constitution and give people rights. They're really, you know, they're really worried. And so we see, we saw with the second round election, um, even though, you know, historically elections have been very close in Peru and, you know, only, they only look to the last elections to see that there were similar numbers separating the first place and the second place contenders. And those elections were called immediately. Whereas in this case, it took, you know, over a month for the electoral bodies to kind of respond to all of the different claims that were put forward by Keiko Fujimori. And, you know, during this whole process, it wasn't, it wasn't free. This whole process served to kind of, you know, slowly erode and slowly delegitimize this government that was popularly elected. And, you know, finally, finally, they had no other options. Pedro Castillo was inaugurated. He started to choose his government ministers and they said, okay, you know, here maybe he's going to con- he's going to concede and he's going to appoint some people from the other side of the political spectrum. And Pedro Castillo said, no, why would I'm not going to appoint, you know, people who are going to not carry forward the policies that I want to create. So you see him appointing people like Hector Bejar, who is, you know, a longtime left leader in Peru, um, you know, a foreign minister who uh, was committed to Latin American unity, committed to you know, normalizing ties with Venezuela, committed to disbanding, you know, the Lima group, you know, that was born in his own country that is only served to attack Venezuela. And, you know, essentially, you know, not only to Hector Behar, but they've been, you know, carrying out these smear campaigns both in the media, which, as we know in Peru, the media has been, is super dominated by kind of the ruling class. They've, you know, of course, wielded this while they were trying to delegitimize the legitimacy of the elections. And they've used the media, they've used, you know, lawsuits to undermine, they've used 
uh, motions of censure in the Congress um, to say that they won't, you know, approve any of these ministers. And I think it's a really worrying situation that we've really seen from day one that they're not going to give up so easily. And they're not going to let, you know, a proclaimed socialist come in and try to, you know, take away all of the privileges that they've been enjoying. Definitely. And, you know, for me, Zoe, I feel like it's important to note that what we're looking at is not so much an attack on uh, Pedro Castillo as an individual or Hector Bahar as an individual, even the Peru Libre Party as an organization, because, I mean, the program that a Castillo promotes and advocates and I think has already shown that uh, is serious in a way of carrying through. But this is something that represents you know, the desires of, you know, the Peruvian people who, who you know, they remember history. They know what is like, you know, sort of having to live under these um, uh, neoliberal measures and things like this. They remember uh, the Fujimori dictatorship and what it would mean for uh, Keiko Fujimori to obtain the leadership of the country. And so as an extension, it really seems that what these elements are, are really attacking are the masses of the Peruvian people themselves because the interest of these uh, right elements and the interest of capital that they represent are contrary to uh, the interest of the Peruvian people in general. And so that sort of irreconcilability between the real strivings of the people of Peru and the strivings of capital and these right wing and more uh, petty bourgeois type elements so that irreconcilability seems to really be the crux of uh, the issue that we're breaking down here, Zoe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a reason why Pedro Castillo, who comes from the countryside, who comes from a peasant family, from indigenous organizations, from peasant organizations, was so popular. I mean, I think this is a really unprecedented moment um, in Latin American history, but also in global history, because he really represents, I mean, I think, you know, we can see parallels with with Evo, with Lula, you know, people who come from the working class, come from, you know, occupations and communities that are, you know, marginalized, excluded um, from political life, from having a say in their destiny. Um, and Peru is an example of a country that was, you know, ruled by a very harsh neoliberalism. I mean, some of, you know, the, the levels of inequality, um, even, you know, just access to basic services during the pandemic. You know, there are millions of Peruvians who didn't have access to clean water. Um, what does that say about kind of the, the harsh policies that are in place in a country that has enormous mineral wealth, you know, that has a lot of, you know, economic growth and opportunities? I mean, it's a, it's a coastal country. It has a lot of trade. There's, you know, a lot of minerals, yet the people are still poor. And so I think the reason why this slogan of Pedro Castillo no more poor people in a rich country really rang true for so many Peruvians. And they saw like, yes, it's a time to like be, you know, have access to education, have access to basic services, because this is what is a right and it should not be denied to people. Definitely. And switching gears a little bit here, Zoe, to talk about Bolivia. I mean, the uh, interdisciplinary group of independent experts of Bolivia or the GIEI um, has published a report uh, basically confirming 
that uh, the coup that was led by uh, the far right de facto President Janine Añez was responsible for uh, uh, crimes of torture and massacre, uh, illegal detention um, of the movement that was basically rebelling against them and rebelling against the fact that they ousted uh, the government of Evo Morales, the movement towards socialism party, forcing him into exile. And, you know, through the struggle of the Bolivian people, uh, eventually Luis Arce, also of Moss, was able to um, ascend to the leadership where it sits today. And uh, what I think is noteworthy about this, I mean, number one, I think anyone who's been following uh, what's been happening in Bolivia since that coup, I mean, it's 100 percent clear that that was the case all along. And this just seems to be confirmation of what seemed to be uh, pretty obvious. But I do want to note that, I mean, this report found that there were, you know, distinct uh, racial and uh, gender based uh, types of violence that were going on, particularly, you know, with uh, uh, young women, with uh, police officers and anyone who was believed to be um, a supporter of Moss in this largely indigenous country. And, you know, it, it uh, reportedly there's going to be, you know, reparations that are paid to victims, families and things like this. I mean, we're talking about injuries, both physical and psychological. Um, on the people of Bolivia as uh, as a result of this uh, racist uh, right wing sort of religious zealot uh, coup government, Zoe. And, you know, it uh, and even now, as we see Janine Añez incarcerated and uh, seemingly playing out a kind of drama like she's been held in a dungeon or something being being tortured. And I mean, it's just clear that, you know, the ripple effects of that coup still very much impacting the people of Bolivia and very well may uh, for some time. I think that's definitely right. And I mean, just this morning, the Permanent Assembly for Human Rights in Bolivia actually released a um, a declaration uh, denouncing a possible attempt to uh, break Janine Añez free um, from prison. Um, so this, you know, she's been creating kind of this like media campaign saying that she's, you know, she herself being the person who presided over a coup regime is now a victim of the dictatorship and that she's, you know, being her, her rights are being violated. And there has been kind of rumblings amongst these like right wing factions within Bolivia of a possible plan. I haven't, you know, read too far into it. I think they're very alert because they know that the right wing is having a very strong response to all of the actions taken by um, the new government of Luis Arce and Vichokiwanka. Um, I mean, what's really interesting is that, you know, there's been, you know, across Latin America, there's been many, um, there's a long history of, you know, really horrific human rights violations being carried out um, by different dictatorships. I mean, the seventies in Latin America and, you know, different countries have had different, approaches to how to address not only the crimes that were committed, how to, you know, do repatriation to victims, you know, make sure that justice is carried out, but also how to how to grapple with these sectors that still exist in society. And what's also interesting in the report from the um, uh, independent group of experts is that they highlight these two paramilitary groups that exist in Bolivia and they, and they, you know, make it clear. And there's been, you know, criminal proceedings taken against members of these groups 
to make sure that they don't have, you know, the freedom and impunity to carry out the kind of violence that they were carrying out during this time where they had, you know, almost complete sympathy and support from the government. And I think when we're talking about justice and when we're talking about, you know, never again and what we've seen in a lot of these Latin American countries, it's, you know, having, showing that these crimes cannot happen without consequence and that, you know, when you have a left government, like the government of Luis Arce, they're going to actually take all of these crimes very seriously. And I think they've won the respect and the trust of the people because they're not just brushing these aside and saying, oh, that was a bad year that happened. They're really, really taking it seriously and making sure that all of those families who are impacted by the coup, because it wasn't just a coup against Evo Morales, it was a coup against the Bolivian people, um, that they, you know, receive justice. Yeah, and speaking of Janine Añez being incarcerated, I was looking at some images and videos published by our friends at Calcetun News, which is based in Bolivia. And I mean, it appears that, you know, inmates of the Miraflores prison where uh, Añez is being held uh, were actually in an uproar because of uh, the privileges that she's enjoyed. And there's some video of them chanting uh, prison is not a hotel. And they've published some pictures which um, are of Añez's uh, prison cell. And it, she looks to have, you know, a desk, a breakfast area, two beds, a private bathrooms. I mean, definitely not bad as far as prison goes. And uh, yeah, just just pretty wild all around. And I also wanted to uh, talk for a minute, if we could, Zoe, um, shifting our gears a little bit to Colombia about the uh, recent death of uh, Esteban Mosquera. I mean, this is someone who actually lost his eye to uh, the ESMAD police force, which has a direct connection to um, the U.S. government uh, during protests back in December 2018. He was actually shot and killed recently. And, you know, this is someone who would receive threats from uh, the paramilitary forces in Colombia. And we know that um, uh, uh, Colombia uh, has a you know a deep history of, you know, this kind of violence against uh, social movement leaders and participants. And I think about, Zoe, the connection and the support that Colombia's uh, government under uh, Ivan Duque receives from the United States. And I feel like if we look at Colombia, if we look at Bolivia, if we look at Peru, there seems like there's a, a through line of support from Washington that still very much wants to maintain control in Latin America and has absolutely no problem violating the sovereignty of these countries and interfering in their democracies, either directly or indirectly to achieve that end. And so, I mean, how do you sort of see the role of Washington playing into what's happening in these countries and really in the region as of uh, right now, Zoe? Yeah. I mean, we've, this is kind of the thread that's been, you know, constantly coming up, especially when we see the, you know, opposite case of Cuba, where there's one protest one day and the U.S. kind of completely shifts their for I mean, you know, the U.S. has been kind of quiet on Cuba since Joe Biden took office, and they completely shifted their entire policy towards Cuba, you know, launching, intensifying the blockade, launching, you know, attacks through all means necessary. I mean, through the NGOs, through the nonprofits, through the international institutions that the U.S. controls, through, you know, policies, through mass media, you know, a complete, complete attack on Cuba. And I think the case of Colombia just 
exemplifies that this is their concern for Cuba, in quotes, I say, has nothing to do with human rights because we only have to look, you know, to what's happening in Colombia to know that it's about maintaining their interests, you know, protecting their interests because, you know, there have been, there were over, I think, what was it, over 80 people killed during the protests of the national strike in Colombia. Um, Estela Mosquera is the 34th social leader to be kind of selectively assassinated in this year. There have been over a thousand social leaders and human rights defenders assassinated in Colombia since 2016. This is not a normal situation. And what has the U.S. done? I mean, if they're doing a lot, they're, they're releasing a statement saying this is, you know, this should be investigated. This isn't good. But never have they cut the military funding for all um, for Colombia. Never have they suspended um, their support, their training exercises with Colombian soldiers. They have not taken any of the very basic demands that Colombian movements have raised the U.S. government numerous occasions. They're saying, you know, don't do anything. Just suspend the military aid. That's all we ask for. You know, suspend this cooperation with a government that has proven to be criminal. Um, and they haven't. And, you know, despite these horrible human rights violations, it continues to be the country which most receives U.S. aid in the region, which has been, you know, an unfailing ally through all of these years. And so I think that that really tells the story that we're trying to understand. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us today. Also want to encourage people to check out the podcast, Give the People What They Want, which features Zoe, uh, Dr. Vijay Prashad, another friend of the show and the good brother Prasant. But we're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments inside Brazil as it pertains to far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Brian Meir, co-editor of Brazil Wire and author of Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Brian, there is an ongoing investigation happening inside Brazil concerning a social media campaign that is calling for a violent attack against Brazil's Supreme Court on Brazilian Independence Day, which is September 7th. So pretty soon uh, from today and and even in recent days, uh, Brazilian federal police actually raided the homes of several people in connection to this. And of course, this is sent around uh, uh, sitting President Jair Bolsonaro, who is facing uh, a number of issues in terms of, uh, I think, declining popularity and the prospect of having to face off with a uh, popular former president Lula da Silva. And uh, you recently published a piece
piece about this, Brian, on Brazil Wire entitled, Will September 7th Be Brazil's January 6th? And so I was hoping you could uh, help us understand just what's happening here, Brian, and why you think we may be uh, facing down a situation in Brazil that may be something akin to the attack on the Capitol here in Washington, D.C. Okay, well, I'll start by talking about what happened in Sioux City, uh, South Dakota, at Mike Lim- the Mike Pillow guy, Mike Lindell's symposium about election fraud last week or 10 days ago, whenever it was. I think it was September, uh, August 10th. Uh, President Jair Bolsonaro's son, Eduardo, who has been serving as the liaison between the Bolsonaro government and the American and international far right, uh, was a, a guest at the symposium. He was introduced on stage by Steve Bannon, who hugged him and announced that the elections, the upcoming presidential elections next year uh, in Brazil will be the second most important elections in uh, Western Hemisphere history and Latin American. They'll be the most important elections in Latin American history. And uh, Bolsonaro would win in a second if there's no fraud that takes place, okay? Uh, and they've been helping Bolsonaro develop this Trump-like narrative. When I say that, I mean the American, you know, white supremacist far right has been helping him develop this preemptive narrative that the elections uh, are going to be stolen. And uh, so Bolsonaro has gone off on a series of rants online, on Facebook Live, which, you know, Zuckerberg has never tried to bar him for lying about COVID and, you know, leading people into not paying attention to the vaccine or masks and stuff and killing lots of people. He's never censored on Facebook Live, but he he rallied against the Brazilian electoral system as he was trying to push through a resolution in the Congress and Senate that would return Brazil to a paper vote. And um, so now he's under investigation from the electoral court in Brazil for committing electoral fraud by going off on these rants against the electoral system with no evidence, accusing, you know, accusing the system of being corrupted and easily hacked into and this and that, when in fact there hasn't been one proven case of election fraud in the electronic system since it was implemented in 1996. And that's mainly because each ballot box is separate. It can't be connected to any kind of system or network. They have to be tallied one by one, even though they're electronic, right? So ironically, Bolsonaro is a guy who has always said that he, he refuses, he like has done the most possible he can to refuse to accept the results of the U.S. presidential election because of fraud in the paper ballot system, which he alleges happened there, parroting these lines from Steve Bannon, Mike Lindell, and all that. At the same time, he's trying to push to return to paper ballot in Brazil which, according to him, is the system that caused Trump to lose the election. It makes no sense. It's just cognitive dissonance. And so when he failed to intimidate Congress into passing that legislation, he started a new push against the Supreme Court, in which he and his followers are continually threatening the Supreme Court as a democratic institution. He's initiated two impeachment attempts against different Supreme Court justices, And his followers have started this massive social media campaign uh, making violent threats that has really upped its ante in the last couple of weeks, leading me to believe that, you know, it's on on September 7th. They're going to try and do some kind of capital type 
occupation or invasion of the Supreme Court building, possibly also the electoral court headquarters building. And um, I have a feeling that it's not going to succeed. It's going to be a media spectacle, and they're going to use it as a propaganda tool, as Bannon and his people are using the failed capital invasion in the U.S. as a propaganda tool to just erode confidence in democratic institutions during the lead up to the next election, which in Brazil is 2022. And that's going to be used by the international far right to pilot all kinds of full spectrum war, social media psyops activities that they'll then go on to use in the 2024 elections in the U.S. Yeah, and I tend to agree, Brian, that this is a a Trumpian tactic that Bolsonaro is engaging here, trying to uh, cast doubts on the uh, validity and veracity of the country's voting systems without producing really any evidence of that. I mean, Bolsonaro, of course, someone who, you know, goes by the nickname, the Trump of the tropics. And, you know, Brian, you know, I, I was hoping you could sort of explain how things developed up to this point regarding Bolsonaro in Brazil right now. I mean, I was looking at a recent um, article on Telesur that reported on a a recent poll by uh, Poder Data that was carried out in 433 municipalities of Brazil's 27 states that um, indicates that at least 58% of Brazilians uh, want Bolsonaro impeached. And and I also uh, get the feeling, given recent events, um, particularly around, I think, Bolsonaro's handling, or rather the mishandling handling of the coronavirus pandemic, that there have also been some splits even within his camp. So, Brian, what is your estimation of uh, uh, Bolsonaro's status, if you will, how he's perceived both by the public in Brazil and even within his own government? Well, uh, he wrote the power on, you know, this massive U.S.-backed fraudulent campaign to remove the leading presidential candidate, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, from the election. Uh, and even after Lula was in jail, the Lava Jato team worked to slander, commit slander against Lula's replacement candidate a week before the elections, Fernando Haddad, uh, for which Judge Sergio Moro is now suspect in felony judicial bias investigation. Seven counts, okay? So at the time that he squeaked through his electoral victory uh, in 2018, he had the support of a wide range of Brazilian elites, you know, mainly out of the risk to their fortunes that was represented by a Workers' Party candidate coming to power and possibly undoing privatizations of the offshore petroleum reserves, privatizations of the financial sector, and all kinds of things that were pushed through by coup president Michel Temer. So what Bolsonaro promised, essentially, a large group of elites just looked the other way at all of his signs of fascism and supported him because he was going to guarantee continuity of this project called Bridge to the Futures, which is a, uh, in, is a kind of deep austerity and privatization program for Brazil that was designed by elites before the 2016 coup against Dilma Rousseff. So he's offered no break with the economic uh, austerity program that was put in power in 2016. He's continued with all the privatizations. This makes all of the northern multinational corporations in the mining, petroleum, uh, agribusiness, 
pesticide industries, happy, beef industry, all of this stuff. They're overjoyed. They're still overjoyed with Bolsonaro. But the, you know, the fact that he's committing genocide, his government's committing genocide against indigenous tribes and like really accelerating deforestation in Amazonia and the Amazon rainforest has got a lot of people worried. Uh, it, it's making the Democrats, some Democrats, a little bit uncomfortable. Nevertheless, the Biden administration still shows every sign that it's continuing to work with Bolsonaro. It's normalizing Bolsonaro. Biden sent a CIA director down to meet with Bolsonaro and his top generals last month. Then a couple of weeks later, Jake Sullivan showed up and invited Brazil to join NATO. So we're in a situation down here right now where, on the one hand, we have the DNC apparatus not showing any signs that they're willing to break with Bolsonaro. To the contrary, they're talking about improving relations with the Bolsonaro administration. Well, Bolsonaro and his family himself uh, refused to even you know, admit publicly that Biden's the real president and continue hanging out with people like Mike Lindell, Steve Bannon, and developing these um, Cambridge Analytica-style schemes to steal an election next year. But uh, Bolsonaro is currently trailing by 30 points in the polls on. Yeah, and I'm glad that you make note of the support that Bolsonaro continues to have from the U.S. government, including the Biden administration, Brian. And I want to swing back around to something you mentioned earlier about the involvement of Steve Bannon here, because in those same comments that he made about the uh, upcoming election in Brazil, Bannon also said, quote, Jair Bolsonaro will face the most dangerous leftist in the world, Lula. A criminal and communist supported by all the media here in the U.S., all the left wing media. And really, I want to ask two things. Right? I mean, number one, how did Steve Bannon, former advisor um, of Donald Trump, a, a, a very prominent far right figure, how did he even get sort of connected into Brazilian politics? And also, I think it's important for our listeners to sort of understand the role of the uh, Jair Bolsonaro government and it de- and its developing ties and relationships with the global far right, which is, I think, a very troublesome and really worrisome thing that we should really be keeping an eye on. But I mean, how do you see the connection there between Bannon and uh, uh, these relationships that um, Bolsonaro has been developing with reactionaries across the globe? Well, you know, I mean, there's there's always been all of this interaction. I mean, even John Bolton was head of some think tank that was spreading all of these anti-Muslim lies in Germany and things before he got into the Trump administration. But Steve Bannon, you know, he's had ties to Cambridge Analytica, which not just Cambridge Analytica, but I I have a feeling that Cambridge Analytica is just one of several types of companies and organizations that use social media to manipulate and stimulate color revolutions and, and overthrow governments around the world, right? But we know that those kinds of tactics started being um, used heavily in Brazil in 2013 uh, during the, these um, protests about transportation fare hikes that just exploded into this massive anti-government protests. We know they were using the same kind of tactics there that were used in Tunisia and Egypt. And, you know. So uh, there's been some connection. And also, it's just the fact that Brazil is the largest country in the world with the largest economy in the world run by a right-wing extremist right now. I mean, what we have now is like Hungary, Brazil, Poland, Israel, I guess, 
Brazil is the largest of any of those in population and economic size by a long run. So it seems obvious that, both, that Bannon would be interested. But it looks like over the past four or five years, it's really been uh, Jair Bolsonaro's son, Eduardo, who's a congressman, who's taken a lot of initiative to reach out to all these figures on the Brazilian far right. In fact, there was just a uh, German far-right parliamentarian who he invited to visit his dad in Brasilia. Um, this uh, Vance Dorch, I think is her last name. She's the granddaughter of Hitler's finance minister. And she was down here, you know, a couple weeks before the real push to invade the Supreme Court started. And, you know, that Hitler had his militias, too. And Bolsonaro seems to be trying to use a kind of militia approach. So I'm just wondering if they were, like, comparing notes on how to use paramilitary militias to overthrow government institutions like her grandfather did. Yeah. And, you know, Brian, I've also been thinking that, you know, Bolsonaro and his government wouldn't even be behaving this way if they didn't actually feel uh, like there was a chance of defeat, of electoral defeat against uh, uh, either Lula da Silva specifically or the sort of uh, popular progressive elements in Brazil in general. And so I'm wondering how have the more uh, progressive elements within Brazil's political scene sort of been responding to all this? I mean, of course, we know Lula um, still pretty recently freed after being a a political prisoner from the whole uh, Lava Jato situation that you were mentioning earlier in our conversation. But I mean, how do you sort of see those forces, uh, you know, building up or organizing or, or how are they sort of maneuvering in this moment as, you know, Bolsonaro is clearly sort of uh, uh, ramping up to really make a move uh, to remain in power, uh, perhaps regardless of what the, the results of the upcoming election say? Well, the fact that the Brazilian organized left, which is comprised of the Kut Labor Union Federation, which is the second largest in the Americas after the FLCIO, with social movements like the MST, the Central de Movimentos Populares, and the National Students Union, have been able to hold up and maintain their political project and maintain the Brazilian Workers' Party as the largest party in Congress during really about nine, eight or nine years of full-spectrum character assassination in the Brazilian media and in the international media and in the international left media until very recently is a sign of their resilience and their talent in base-level political organizing. So after all of this, after, you know, the New York Times ran eight articles associating erroneously and slanderously associating Dilma Rousseff with Petrobras petroleum uh, corruption in the week before her presidential re-election, after Jacobin ran 38 consecutive articles falsely accusing the Workers' Party and Lula of being neoliberals during the coup period, now they've done a 180 and they're you know, doing some pretty good reporting. But at the time, it was really nefarious. The nation, you know, democracy now, all of these organizations that should have been showing solidarity during this whole period just um, ran disinformation. You know, the Guardian, three days before Lula was arrested, uh, lied about his conviction and falsely associated him with $88 million, million real Petrobras fraud, which was removed from the charges years before. So the fact that they're still around and that 
the Workers' Party, it's not just Lula. It represents a project for Brazil that's based on principles of Keynesian economics, of what they call Latin America de developmentalism, pioneered by people like Raul Prebisch and Sultan Furtado and whatnot. It's a project based on strengthening sovereignty, strengthening internal manufacturing and consumption, and investing heavily in science and technology and in public education, free university education for all. That project is still the most popular project in Brazil. You know, promising privatizations or public-private partnerships during an election season is still the kiss of death for any candidate, which is why Bolsonaro had to just make up these kind of like fascist hate lies. He, he was propelled into election not only by fraud, but by convincing most evangelical Christians in the country that um, Fernando Haddad, the alternate candidate uh, who stepped in when Lula was thrown out, would transform their children into homosexuals if he won, that there'd be a government panel uh, deciding the gender of all children at age five. This is all culture war stuff in, imported from Steve Bannon, who was working with him at that time. But the actual economic project of the right is totally unelectable in Brazil still, despite, despite 10 years of slander, despite all the pompous economic articles in Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, no one in, in Brazil believes in that neoliberal project. And that's why even if Lula doesn't run, the, the Workers' Party, uh, in alliance with other left, smaller left parties like the PSOL, who've announced that they're not going to run a presidential candidate next year and, and support Lula, they would still beat Bolsonaro. The only way Bolsonaro could win is through this QAnon-style massive social media brainwashing, you know, supported by people like Mike Zuckerberg and, you know, the owners of these uh, social media monopoly billionaires. That's the only way. The, the right-wing economic project is unelectable in the third world in general, in the developing world, because everyone knows what the results of it are. Massive poverty, starvation, growth stunting, social unrest, you know, and a dumbing down of the population and brain drain to the north of anyone who's got a decent college degree. That's the result of right-wing economic policies in Latin America. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. And in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also hit us up on social media, facebook.com 
slash B-A-M Necessary and on Twitter at B-A-M Necessary. You can download our shows on iTunes. We would very much appreciate a nice rating from you. iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Spreaker. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. You can hear us live on SputnikNews.com and 105.5 FM and... 1390 AM on your dial here in DC, but wherever you are in this world, we most certainly want to hear from you. And at the top of the hour today, it is actually the 20th anniversary of the death of singer Aaliyah Houghton, who performed under the name Aaliyah. She uh, died tragically in a, a plane crash 20 years ago, I believe not long after shooting a music video um, as it turns out her music is after years has finally been able to be uh, uploaded to different streaming services so i've definitely been listening to one in a million and if your girl only knew and all of those classic songs from that period so rest in peace to Aaliyah. but be that as it may we're happy to be joined for the hour today by danny heifong co-host of the left lens and the co-author of american exceptionalism and american innocence a people's history of fake news from the revolutionary war to the war on terror danny thanks so much for joining us good to be with you sean Absolutely. And Danny, uh, you may remember and listeners may remember that back in May, uh, President Joe Biden ordered the uh, intelligence agencies to produce a report, quote, that could bring us closer to a definitive conclusion on the origins of the coronavirus and basically what amounted to a, a, a rehash of the racist Wuhan lab leak conspiracy first put forth by uh, right-wing President Donald Trump. Well, uh, President Biden has actually received a classified report from those same intelligence communities on the origins of the uh, coronavirus pandemic and <laughs> looks like it's inconclusive and they weren't really able to tell whether or not the pathogen traveled from an animal to a human as a part of some uh, natural occurrence or if it escaped from a lab, which sounds like, you know, some kind of plot to a movie or something like that. It almost seemed like you know, Biden was grasping at tra- uh, straws trying to find some kind of substance to this uh, baseless conspiracy. And, you know, um, Danny, you you wrote about this back when, you know, Biden was first trumpeting this whole thing. And, and you were saying in that piece, I think that, you know, Biden has shown himself to be a Democrat with Trumpian characteristics. And I think that's noteworthy because I think on this issue and a number of others, it's just a reminder about how Biden was presented and advertised as the anti-Trump. But on so many questions, I mean, he seems to be more alike to Trump uh, than unalike. And in some cases, even uh, to the right. But I'm just wondering uh, what you're thinking about this inconclusive report uh, around the, the Wuhan lab leak narrative. Well, I think another way to describe Joe Biden is more effective than Donald Trump as well, because if we go back to 2020, when this narrative started circulating from the mouths of people like Tom Cotton and then eventually Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, it was written off as a conspiracy theory. 
And suddenly, when Joe Biden comes into office, this theory, this lab leak theory, gains legitimacy. And even an entire so-called intelligence investigation, which, as you described, produced absolutely nothing in the way of evidence. And, And that's because this was never about evidence. This was never about the origins of COVID-19. It was always a politically motivated act of aggression toward China. And that's what the lab leak theory has always been. And in my article that you mentioned, I compare it to Russiagate in the sense that both are conspiracy theories and both serve geopolitical ends. Uh, Russiagate serving the purpose of uh, ramping up new Cold War racist feelings toward Russia so that the United States, its NATO allies, can increase their presence along Russia's borders in Eastern Europe and the Baltic states. And similarly, the lab leak theory is all about pinning COVID-19, the blame for COVID-19 onto China, so that all of the U.S.'s policies gain credibility, all of its aggressive policies from the military provocations in the South China Sea to the economic sanctions uh, on so-called human rights issues, on the basis of so-called human rights issues, diplomatically and you know, uh, sanctioning the Communist Party of China, keeping Meng Wanzhou of Huawei, the CFO, in house arrest in Canada, you know, on and on and on, all of these policies are part of this new Cold War against China that the United States is leading. And the COVID-19 origins myth, the lab leak theory, is about cementing the basis for this new Cold War in a way that is a lot more dangerous than I think uh, even prior anti-China talking points have been. Uh, before China was just this boogie man that was a so-called imperialist power everywhere, and its rise was a threat, quote unquote, because it was its own military power. But now China is being labeled as a spreader, a transmitter of disease, and the propaganda of the lab leak theory has been very effective in the sense that. There are majorities of people in the United States who do think China is to blame for COVID-19. And, and there is very little uh, worse. There's, very, there's not much that is worse in terms of propaganda and being able to, in such a racist fashion, pin a virus, which the World Health Organization at the end of March said likely was of natural origins, meaning that it began in nature and transmitted to humans, that, uh, you know, this racist narrative is all about ramping up aggression on China. And it's been effective because so many people have, from the right, especially the far right, but even on the left, from liberals to even leftists, have at the very least given tacit endorsement to this lab leak theory sometimes out of a a curiosity, right, out of curiosity for conspiracy theories, many of which are legitimate and legitimate criticisms of the U.S. government, for example, or out of this very faulty, if not completely incorrect, notion that China is somehow an equal enemy to humanity as the United States. And I think the COVID-19 lab leak theory, this latest intelligence dump, which gave nothing in the way of information, uh, it was always about political ends. And it was always about trying to 
one-up China in a period where the two countries, the United States and China, are really moving in diametrically opposing directions. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised the issue of the naturally sort of occurring nature of the coronavirus, because I've been thinking a lot about how the whole question, excuse me, around the origin of the pandemic has been so deeply politicized. And we've raised this on the show before. And I mean, we know throughout the history of pandemics is that, you know, they emerge somewhere on earth and then spread. But the fact that it could maybe be traced to this or that place geographically isn't necessarily seen as some kind of statement or commentary on um, the nature or character of that place. But it's been so politicized on the question of the coronavirus precisely because of the ability to try to weaponize it against China. And so as a part of this broader narrative of China being this, you know, uh, dystopian, communist-controlled, you know, hellhole who, you know, uh, lock up uh, uh, Uyghurs and political dissidents and all these sorts of things. I mean, to then turn around and say that uh, that not only that, but that this country is responsible for <clears throat> unleashing a plague on the world. Well, I mean, it just sort of helps to, you know, stack that uh, a boogeyman resume that Washington wants to draft for China in order to justify in the minds of the American people all of the things that Washington has to do, which doesn't benefit the rank and file person in the United States. Certainly doesn't benefit anyone China in China, but really only uh, benefits and legitimizes the position of the ruling class uh, politicians in the United States and their corporate paymasters. But it's really like a nonsensical sort of thing. I mean, it's almost like the, the, the politicization of masks in the United States under the pandemic to where, you know, one's position on on whether or not to wear masks and do social distancing is things like that is even itself considered a kind of political statement when in reality it's just objectively, you know, little small strategies that people can use to mitigate spread. You know what I mean? So when we look at this whole origin question, Danny, and how it's been politicized only because of the role of China. I mean, I think this just supports the point that you're making, that at the center of it all is just yet another opportunity to attack Beijing. Definitely. And the lab leak theory, just like Russiagate, just like weapons of mass destruction, not only do these theories that are really just lies on the part of the U.S. establishment, not only do they justify wars of aggression, whether it's the new Cold War in China, the outright invasion of Afghanistan, uh, the invasion of Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. Not only do these kind of lies justify these acts of aggression, but they also serve as a very convenient distraction from very legitimate problems. For example, if we wanted to have a discussion about the origins of COVID-19, or any other virus for that matter, any other illness like SARS, et cetera, we, we would be having discussions about how capitalism, global capitalism, has disrupted habitats and destroyed the environment over the last several centuries, leading to the possibility for increased uh, viral spread, the increased risk of pandemics like COVID-19. We would be talking about the role of wars in worsening 
the ability to contain uh, something like COVID-19. I mean, throughout this whole process, while the United States was practicing herd immunity on the population, basically allowing the spread of COVID-19 to to, uh, uh, to basically, uh, you know, be free to transmit to any, you know, anyone and everyone uh, that it could, the United States was still investing in wars and keeping, not only keep growing the military budget, but also waging wars and uh, slapping sanctions onto Iran and Venezuela to ensure that they had a lot more difficult of a time in their own pandemic responses. So there are so many distractions that are served with this lab leak theory. Like we can't even have a conversation anymore about a zero COVID-19 strategy for the United States, partly because the lab leak theory serves an overall agenda on the part of the U.S. establishment to ensure that businesses and corporations and uh, the finance capital that they all are uh, taken care of, that their profits are maintained and even expanded, as we've seen so many uh, of the richest people in the world, like Jeff Bezos, for example, uh, increased their profits over this time at the expense of the suffering of so many, including 600,000 dead from COVID-19 here in the United States. So really, the lab leak theory is all about this distraction. It's all about making China out to be the enemy. Uh, and what's ironic about this, and I think one of the reasons why this theory cannot lead to an outright war of aggression, and I know that there are a lot of people who don't believe that that's possible. Uh, I think that's a little naive, but the, I think the objective conditions are important to analyze here in the sense that China has successfully addressed COVID-19 within the best of its capacity, um, has perhaps probably the best COVID-19 response in the world, given the size of its population and uh, its level of development, uh, and especially from where China was just 70 years ago. And the United States is supposedly the, mo- the richest, most technologically superior economy in the world, but yet it has arguably the worst pandemic response in the world. So the lively theory really diverts attention from really these critical questions, because as scientists from China and elsewhere have noted, investigating the origins of COVID-19 is going to take years. That we still have pandemics and viruses and, and a lot of different scientific phenomena that cannot be explained in several months' time. Um, and so really the lively theory also undermines future efforts to, to do so, because it really makes it so there's pressure on the so-called scientific community, wherever they are, to have to address this, whether they willfully want to, which unfortunately some in the so-called scientific community in the United States have done, or whether they don't, like in China, where they have been forced to address this over and over again, while they have been working and cooperating with the World Health Organization since the beginning to try to figure out how to not only eliminate and eradicate COVID-19 from the planet, but also figure out where it came from so they can do it in the future. So I think that is just a summary of the the kind of distraction that the lab leak theory serves. And it's just one of the myriad of problems, I think, that this uh, debunked conspiracy theory that's racist and its origins uh, really presents to us.
Yeah, and you know, hearing you describe that, Danny, it's it's hard for me to believe that there isn't someone in this whole process, if not several people, right, who know very well that what you just said is true in terms of, you know, studying the origins of something like a global pandemic, obviously uh, a deeply complicated process that takes um, a good bit of time. But yet it's almost like this uh, dog and pony show has to be trotted out to uh, muddy the waters because of the geopolitical interests of the United States, which, as we've been saying, uh, has been used to cast a pall on China. And, and I think you're, you're correct when you talk about how it also distracts from the criminal negligence shown by the United States in its response to the pandemic. It is positively shameful for a country as wealthy and well-resourced as the United States to be in, in such a poor position as it concerns a pandemic. And why is that the case? Because just of what you said is that at every turn, the interests of capital in the United States has been prioritized over the actual lives of flesh and blood people, both in this country and outside. But see, this is just an example of how capitalism needs inhumanity to function. So, of course, we have a system where those in power, frankly, don't care if people get sick and die or if over 600,000 people have died in this country and that there are still issues, even as the United States and other wealthy countries continue to hoard vaccines, just like they hoard the wealth plundered from the rest of the earth, right? That there's still serious issues with things as basic as vaccine access and things like this, because the U.S. refuses to make those resources available or to change policies to ensure that everyone has access to them to the extent that they should. So, I mean, just, I mean, the depth of inhumanity here is really just incredible, but we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in Washington, DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. We continue to be joined here by Danny Haifong. And speaking of China, Danny, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris recently took a trip to Southeast Asia, where she basically promised the region that they could count on the U.S. to protect them from mean old China. And so during her trip to Singapore, she said, quote, in the South China Sea, we know that Beijing continues to coerce, to intimidate and to make claims to the vast majority of the South China Sea. 
Uh, she said that China's, quote, unlawful aims continue to undermine the rules-based order. There's that phrase again. To undermine the rules-based order and threaten the sovereignty of nations. And she also accused China of bullying its neighbors uh, elsewhere in the region. And I have to say a couple of things. Number one, it's starting to seem like taking these little trips is all Kamala Harris is doing. Like she she did, uh, you know, Southeast Asia. She did um, Latin America not that long ago, you know, went to, to, to Guatemala and talked about the quote unquote root causes of uh, immigration, uh, of course, without even um, gesturing towards uh, the imperialist policies of the United States. And so that's one thing. I think perhaps... <laughs> The uh, efficacy of Kamala Harris as vice president is maybe quite another and then what that's going to mean for her within the Democratic Party moving forward. But, you know, to me, Danny, this is just another example, just like the Wuhan lab leak conspiracy. Another example of, you know, building this narrative that China represents this belligerent, uh, violent, warlike force that has to be repudiated by the gallant United States, you know, galloping along on its white steed of of liberty and freedom and democracy and human rights and all these sorts of things. And I mean, I mean, to me, it's just uh, I mean, it would be laughable if it wasn't inching us ever closer to an outright hot war, which would be a disaster for humanity, I think. And I feel like I should also point out that Harris during this um, Southeast Asia trip also visited Vietnam, while she met uh, Vietnamese President Nguyen Hoan Phuc and, uh, you know, was talking about the South China Sea and things like that. Also visited a memorial to John McCain that's in uh, uh, Vietnam. I believe this was on the anniversary of McCain's death. And so she went to the memorial and said, quote, John McCain was an extraordinary American hero. I was honored and privileged to serve with him for a short time in the United States. Sentence, John McCain, he loved our country. He was so courageous and really lived the life of a hero. Used it again. The sacrifices he made that were on every scale imaginable, loved our country and really always fought for the best of who we are. And it turns out today is the anniversary. So there we are. And so on the one hand, we have... Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, visiting a memorial site for a man who was dropping bombs on Vietnam and then talking about a supposed rule based order um, in terms of China, saying that China is violating this order. When, of course, we know that, you know, the U.S. is the one making the rules in this rules based order. I mean, it's just uh, a, a big, it's a carnival of imperialism, feels like, uh, Danny, on a number of ways. But again, is a part of, you know, building that narrative and sort of heavily implying that the United States um, wants to, you know, intervene militarily in terms of uh, attacking Beijing outright as China is on pace to um, out strip, you will, the U.S. as the chief economic power on the world stage. Yes, indeed. The visit to Singapore and then Vietnam, this latest diplomatic snafu by the United States, was always about trying to reorganize so-called Asian states, the uh, Southeast Asian 
region against China. That's been Joe Biden's stated policy since coming into office, that there would be this renewed focus on quote-unquote multilateralism, and that Joe Biden and his administration defines multilateralism as how can the U.S. best mobilize an alliance of the willing, a coalition of the willing, so to speak, to target, surround, and ultimately isolate China. And over and over again, this, these attempts have fallen flat on their face, and this one was no different. Uh, now, after what many saw in Singapore as a pretty big diplomatic defeat in the sense that Kamala Harris was coming just uh, weeks, just uh, not even a week after it was found that her vice presidency is one of the least popular that the United States has seen over the course of measuring what that means here in the United States. So she ends up going to Asia with this uh, damaged legitimacy, which uh, honestly didn't need any more damaging given how she fared in the 2020 election and then um, onward into this vice presidency. But nonetheless, she ends up going with this damaged legitimacy individually. And then the United States, uh, Afghanistan, it's an occupation of Afghanistan. It's a 20-year-long war in Afghanistan. Uh, I won't say ended, but was given a heavy blow with the uh, newfound political power that the Taliban has been building over the course of time and really stripped from the United States in rapid fashion in recent weeks. That defeat was hanging high, hanging very high on the head and very strong on the heads of all of the United States' foreign policy establishment. So Kamala Harris comes to Asia, Singapore, and Vietnam to try and convince these countries that it is, in fact, a more trustworthy ally than China. Now, what was very interesting about this meeting, especially in regards to Vietnam, because as your viewers may know, Vietnam is a socialist country. It also, like China, is led by a communist party. And, uh, you know, China and Vietnam have had both, uh, I would say, strong, warm, and uh, cold relations at times. They've had problems with each other for many, many decades. And these problems date back actually centuries before their respective revolutions. So there have been... Uh, tensions between the two countries that the United States has tried to uh, really intensify by trying to snuggle up with Vietnam. And now Vietnam, its government, uh, has been very clear that it will not take a side in any kind of new Cold War. It will not be privy to the United States' aggression. And, and that was made clear again with this visit, signaling another loss. But I think what was even more interesting about it was Kamala Harris as she was speaking with uh, Vietnamese officials, uh, there was an announcement that the United States was going to donate one million doses of its vaccine to Vietnam, which is right now being hit pretty hard by the Delta variant. China had responded to this by donating two million doses. And we know that China has donated seven times more of its vaccines to the planet than the United States has, as you alluded to, the hoarding of U.S. vaccines. So, in effect, I think what this meeting, what this diplomatic attempt by Kamala Harris really shows is really the decline of American empire. You see China has resources that it's willing to share with other countries in a common fight against the pandemic, which is in the interest of all of humanity. And 
China has deep trade relations with both Vietnam and Singapore, which are not going to end, regardless of what the United States does. And so the U.S. comes in talking military, because that's all it really can speak of. It can only speak of military aggression. And on all accounts, the United States achieved very little in this meeting, other than publicizing what Everyone in the United States and the Western world already knew that the United States is hostile towards China, that the United States continuously labels China a quote-unquote threat in its own South China Sea, and that the, the, the region, Southeast Asia, needs the United States to come to the rescue over what are uh, historic and long tensions over the South China Sea, which if left on their own, would be peacefully negotiated between all parties, whether we're talking about the Philippines or Vietnam, China, et cetera. So in, in a word, what we can describe this latest meeting is illegitimacy, that the empire is illegitimate, the American empire is illegitimate, and every attempt to try to rescue any semblance of legitimacy for this empire generally falls flat on its face. And, and so the danger here is that there isn't a strong enough movement, a strong enough anti-imperialist movement, a strong enough movement in solidarity with the human race, and that includes China, to stop the U.S. from taking further aggressive measures to try to win back some kind of legitimacy to itself. Uh, because as we know from history, when the United States cannot gain legitimacy on the soft power front, it will always turn to hard power to ensure that all of its ruling class interests are met. Yeah. And, you know, Danny, I wonder what you think about the unpopularity of Kamala Harris, because even in recent months, we've been seeing articles here and there about people inside the administration and inside the Democratic Party that have, you know, been questioning, you know, what has Kamala Harris um, accomplished, excuse me, and, and sort of implying that she's not held in the highest regard amongst her colleagues. And I mean, that, I mean, the kind of slow building around that narrative to me doesn't feel altogether random because you're you're right and I raise this all the time when bringing up Kamala Harris is that I mean I think the you know the voters have shown just how they feel about uh Kamala Harris um from her time in the election and it just didn't seem like they thought very highly of her and it just kind of feels like there's the beginning of a kind of maybe nudging away or distancing from Kamala Harris from the Democratic Party establishment I mean this is just speculation on my part, but I mean, you know, I think it would have been quite difficult for um, the the Biden administration had they not chosen someone like a Kamala Harris or tokenized some other woman. Because if people remember, um, Joe Biden actually promised that his vice president would be a woman. And then people were pushing for him to, you know, guarantee for it to be a black woman. And then after this, there was this like embarrassing, like jockeying for position amongst a few different um, black women inside the Democratic Party with Kamala Harris sort of emerging as the uh, top contender and eventually getting the spot. But I mean, you know, heading into what I think is not going to be an easy midterm year for 
um, the Democrats in 2022, which will be here before we know it. And then, of course, 2024, when the Republicans will undoubtedly make an even stronger play to regain control of the White House. I mean, we don't know if Donald Trump will run, but I think if it's not him, it will be someone very much in his style. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, looking at Kamala Harris, I mean, she's just not, (laughs) she's not a strong candidate. I mean, I mean, neither was Joe Biden. It was just the fact that there were enough people to vote against Trump that, you know, Biden was able to sort of slide in there. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I'm just wondering what you you make of that, Danny, and, and just the sort of the, the obvious sort of uh, um, cynical identity reductionism that was at play when the Democrats chose Kamala Harris just seemed like it's getting exposed more and more the, the more time goes on. Well, I think for Kamala Harris and for the larger trend of corporate diversity politics and this con of diversity that has produced what many call identity politics, where, you know, representation is deemed the, not just the primary factor, but but the principal one and, and really the sole one, which we should be focusing on in questions of class and power. Um, should be negated, or at least tacitly, that that is what is assumed. But I think for Kamala Harris, the worst thing that happened was the Black Lives Matter movement, this insurgency against racist policing that really began in 2014, arguably 2011 with Trayvon Martin's murder. But since 2014, there has been a real exposure of the mass incarceration state, uh, what Glenn Ford, the late Glenn Ford, called the, the mass black incarceration state. And This is a material problem, which cannot really be avoided, and Kamala Harris's role in it was discussed at length during the 2020 election. So, too, was it discussed at length during the 2016 election uh, when Hillary Clinton was running, and both of them are uh, heavy players in not just promoting this policy, but also of being, in some ways, the architect of, of them, whether it's Kamala Harris in California as a DA and a prosecutor, or whether it's Hillary Clinton as first lady and uh, for Bill Clinton's administration and, and, and really championing his heavy investments in mass incarceration. So, so I think that was really what hurt Kamala Harris the most, is that the blackness leadership class really relies on a, a, a grassroots base, so to speak, that the Democratic Party's base, black people and all of their allies, tend to not challenge this class of leaders because of the attack from the right, which Kamala Harris and every black boss, any politician that, you know, uh, falls to the left of the GOP and the white man's Republican Party experiences, and Kamala Harris has faced that. And, of course, the GOP base has racist um, ideas and, and despises Kamala Harris because of them. But it's the fact that she does not have legitimacy over and with the particular base that is required to uh, ensure political legitimacy, and that is the Democratic Party base, and that there is a split in the black community, especially uh, especially along generational lines, over whether Kamala Harris is someone that should represent them. And that has really hurt her, because she was polling in the single digits before she left, before she... Uh, decided to drop out 
in her own state in the 2020 election. And, and I think that's all we need to know about how popular Kamala Harris is, is that she doesn't even have popularity with her in her own state. And some on the left will say, well, it's just primarily about racism. And others will say, no, it's about, you know, the left um, and the Democratic Party base not really supporting her. And it's both. You know, it's definitely she does not have a base politically right now. And uh, I, I think that really explains this. And when you look at her politically, uh, why should she have a base? Because she's not going to please those who will hate her based on racial lines and gender lines and, and whatnot, party lines, being a part of the Democratic Party. And she's not going to attract the Democratic Party base if she is identified as uh, a mass incarceration uh, champion, a, a you know, a top cop, as she's been called, Cop Mala, right? She has these nicknames, and then that has an impact. And so her as a diplomat now, her as a vice president, as someone championing Joe Biden's policies, it's not necessarily helping her in any significant way. And I think it's because she was starting from such a low point. And I think it's a very positive thing in the sense that we should not be trying to secure the legitimacy of people like Kamala Harris. We should be trying to figure out what's going to replace them because they obviously are not the solution to combating the right wing. And they're certainly not the solution to uh, bringing about some kind of alternative to the Democratic Party. Her role is the exact opposite. Yeah. And you just made a point, Danny, that I think it's it's simple, but it really gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. When you say that Kamala Harris has no base. And that's really it. It's like she really has no foundation that gives her any sort of real uh, character or dimension or, you know, or even, you know, the the barest sense of accountability that we already know these officials at this level don't have anyway. And so, I mean, it seems to only stand to reason that uh, she has a feeling of being rudderless within the administration because she was just sort of stuck in a position um, you know, because of the superficialities of, of who she is and really seemingly not much else. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Danny Haifong is here. And we have a caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, a great show. Uh, glad to hear Danny again. And I just wanted to say that um, not only is it deceptive to push the Wuhan narrative of the lab with no evidence, but it's also deceptive to believe that the presidency is actually run by people who run it. Uh, it's run by people on the boardrooms, in the boardrooms, and at big banks. And um, the only thing that the president is really running is basically a representative for the 1%. Now, we did have some that did uh, run or, or believe that they were in charge, namely JFK. 
And uh, what we found out was it just wouldn't do <laughs> to have a, a belief that you'd want to tear the CIA up into a thousand pieces and throw it into the ocean or that you would get rid of the Federal Reserve. Uh, these things are, and, and that, uh, you know, a piece of legislation that he was going to try to put together is still there. So uh, it doesn't matter who's running the empire. They're all emperors, whether it was Caligula, Octavius, uh, Julius Caesar. Their job was to go out and to cause all the roads to lead to Rome to extract people's wealth, whether it's the South China Sea blocking that up, whether it's spending, uh, uh, you know, almost 80 percent for the war in Afghanistan, going back to contractors and the uh, Beltway bandits and the lobbyists. So it doesn't matter whether Kamala Harris is in charge. The empire will move forward, and there will be no change. She's woefully unequipped. She's not a world-class globalist. She's no Barack. She's never lived outside of America. She's a governor, a former, um, you know, what was it, attorney general. And she was uh, not, she didn't even get any delegates in the primary, and maybe one. And yet she's president. It's on automatic pilot. And I don't know whether you guys would uh, agree with that. I'd like to hear your comment. Well, thanks a lot, Keith. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Danny, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, well, I agree. I, I, she definitely is on automatic pilot. This whole policy um, towards China and, and the ways in which the empire is seeking to re- reproduce itself, you know, she is definitely a byproduct of this larger geopolitical goal and these larger ruling class interests uh, that she serves. And when I said she didn't have a base. I was not counting the rich. Certainly Kamala Harris has a significant uh, support base among the richest among us. However, as we also may know, given the antagonistic uh, class society and and picture that we live in, uh, the rich are certainly a a large minority when it comes to uh, the overall state of things. So that's who she is serving. And in a time where it does, in a moment where it really does take, I mean, look at the popularity of the squad, for example, it really does take effort to try and at least express support for a broader majority's interests, um, especially those in the black community who you claim to look like and be like, um, in order to succeed, uh, at least in the realm of popularity. Now, in terms of policy, uh, that's another story. We could argue that Kamala Harris is really succeeding in a lot of ways because she is pushing through and promoting policies that she really does agree with and that she really uh, understands and knows that these policies will serve her donors. That's why she can go up to officials in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Vietnam, and tell them that China is bullying everyone, including the United States, and say that China needs to follow a treaty, the UN Convention on the Law of the Seas, which the U.S. has yet to ratify. So that, I think, speaks to uh, the fact that military, you know, the military-industrial complex, these military contractors, they are hand-wringing over China. They know it's their biggest a draw in terms of how to expand their market share. And Kamala Harris is doing everything she can to satisfy them. And, and that, that really is a, a huge aspect. And at base, uh, the reason why she behaves the way she does and the way that, and uh, the reason why she is who she is politically and, and why she finds herself in this current predicament. 
And we have another caller on the line here. Malik, tell us what's on your mind. Uh, hi, yes. Uh, I was yeah, mainly uh, calling uh, to uh, touch on, uh, I guess, some of the things that, uh, well, a couple of things that uh, you guys were talking about earlier and your, your guest was talking uh, about in terms of the the narrative around uh, the the uh, coronavirus uh, and I think in, you know, if, if we, you know, if we look back last year, obviously there, there were a lot of stories that were flying around and there was a lot of information out there. Uh, but there were some things that were, were very solid. Uh, there, there were, um, a couple of scientists that stepped forward that had worked at the Wuhan lab. Um, and I, I was looking for the, the name of, of, uh, one of them now, and it's, this wasn't the, the bat lady. This was another woman uh, who had worked at the lab and who had stepped forward and who had uh, actually written reports uh, uh, that uh, that there were that there were several uh, coronaviruses that were um, possibly possibly being weaponized at that lab. And I'm not. And uh, and again, I'm not saying that to uh, to throw any weight to what the uh, what the U.S. government is saying, because obviously we know what the U.S. government's uh, aims are uh, in terms of uh, in terms of China. But I, I think I think um, the position that that many progressives are taking that um, that, you know, that China doesn't have imperialist aims uh, and that China couldn't possibly have uh been involved uh, in anything uh, nefarious that could have led to uh, what the situation we find ourselves in. Um, I, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the, 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 you know, one, if, if you're going to take that route um, and I mean progressives in general, I think you need to leave the door open, uh, especially for those of us out here who, who do a lot of reading and to adopt, who do a lot of digging into information uh, to actually, um, to actually uh, discuss openly um, and respectfully the possibilities that the narrative is neither what the U.S. is saying nor what many in the left are saying. Uh, because th- to be quite honest, there's a lot of information uh, around, this, uh, around this pathogen uh, that is being censored. And it's, and it's rather, and, it's, and you have to, the left has to start to acknowledge that there is frustration, not only on the part of folks who are vocal on the right, but there are a lot of people on the left as well who uh, who don't appreciate the censorship that's taking place, and and it, and it's starting to appear that many progressives are participating in that, and and that and that creates an uh, an atmosphere of oppression uh, and suffocation, and and, you, and and I don't think anybody wants that. You always want uh, there to be open dialogue because that's that's the uh, that should be characteristics of the right when you when you kind of you know when you. When you kind of uh, suffocate the conversation and there's no room for debate, and and so you know if you guys can speak to that, I, I definitely appreciate it. Thanks. Sure thing. Thanks a lot for calling, Malik. I, I mean, number one, I actually don't think it's true that people uh, on the left or progressives in general are sort of uh, uh, generally pro China or even you know anti-imperialist in that sense as it regards China. I actually think it's quite the opposite. I think, unfortunately, most people, a lot of people who consider themselves progressive or on the left 
sound very much like the U.S. government when it comes to the um, issue of China. And you talked about China having imperialist aims. Well, that's just patently false. They 100% do not have uh, imperialist aims. Its rise uh, after emerging out of its own uh, dark history of uh, colonial exploitation and what it refers to of its century of humiliation was not marked by uh, wars and colonialism and and uh, genocide and the exploitations of the land, people and resources of the earth like the United States. And, you know, I'll say again and again and again, as we have many times on this show, it is very wrongheaded and uh, a complete misreading of history um, and contemporary events to suggest that the United States and uh, China are somehow, you know, two sides of the same imperialist coin. I think to say that or even suggest it is a profound misunderstanding of what imperialism even is. The fact that you have a large country that does things doesn't actually make them imperialist. I mean, for instance, if you look at the details, you know, of the uh, Belt and Road initiatives and the way that a lot of these partnerships are uh, playing out on the African continent, in Latin America, and around the world. I mean, it's fundamentally different in, in so many ways from what we see from the West. And, and a lot of these um, uh, institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and things like that. So I, I completely disagree with you on that point. And I'm not sure what you mean by censorship. I actually don't believe that there's some uh, uh, handcuffing of... Uh, uh, um, of uh, a conversation or uh, a differing narratives uh, on the left. I mean, the, the left doesn't have the power to uh, actually do that. I mean, the reality is the people who are uh, cutting off the conversation, not just on China or not just on the pandemic, but on any number of things are the large uh, billionaire corporate controlled uh, media platforms. They're the ones who have the power. They have control over the 24 hour um, news cycle and all these sorts of things. And as such, have been able to lay siege to the consciousness um, of the uh, American people. And so, you know, I, I just uh, I'm not sure what you mean in terms of censorship. I mean, people may disagree, but disagreement is not the same as censorship. But we have one more caller we're going to squeeze in here. Uh, Mo from the district. Tell us what's on your mind. I had a different question to ask, but I think it's important for me to respond to the last call. Uh, I've heard him uh, call into the the show that uh, comes after yours, and I just will come right out and say that he's a, a, a incredible prevaricator, and I'm going to tell you why. In 2019, there's been actually no discussion in the mainstream press regarding the Wuhan games. There's been no discussion, and and how uh, in the Wuhan games you had military that participated in this, and uh, that was the epicenter of the virus. Uh, no discussion from the last caller in regards to the uh, uh, discussion that was, or the program that was held at Johns Hopkins uh, involving uh, Bloomberg and some of the other entities in terms of how to essentially handle a pandemic. Those were uh, quite well documented. They occurred in 2019. 
October of 2019. Uh, there was absolutely no discussion by ja uh, Chinese officials uh, stating their concern of the outbreak in the, of the virus and how in 2019, Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, there were uh, uh, questionable uh, things that happened uh, along those lines. So, you know, we have to be clear and call prevaricators prevaricators when they disseminate inaccurate information and uh, impugn uh, 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 those of us that are about uh, substantial change and change that's going to change as a right to love, love of our community. Um, so the question that I had before that, that, that caller called in with that nonsense uh, that I had is that uh, there needs to be a postmortem uh, uh, in, in, in our community, uh, with the likes of, of Mr. Haifong. And I think that, that, uh, the legacy of Glenn Ford warrants this. And that is that, you know, with the likes of Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, and others from the misleadership class, we haven't had a postmortem and, and, and postmortem directed to uh, concerned entities in terms of how we move forward. So I, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that, and I'd like for you guys to comment. But uh, uh, you guys were very kind to, to that last call, but uh, I found it necessary to respond, and we can't allow to have nonsense, specifically during this portion of the show. So thanks for taking my call, and I'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Malik. Good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Danny Haifong, uh, quite a bit there. A couple of minutes left on the show. Uh, uh, feel free to pull from any part of that. All right. Well, I'll just respond to the first caller. I think, you know, just starting on the premise of China is also imperialist and that we somehow, you know, that there's a lot of reading going on, but not a lot of listening to the Chinese officials and what they have been saying as you know, the lab leak theory is concerned with that it's not a legitimate thing, that we do have a World Health Organization study out there that demonstrates that, yes, this is likely spread in nature and that this is going to take a long time. It's a distraction. I think it's all about what we choose to focus on, because at the end of the day, this undue focus on the lab in Wuhan is really all about ramping up aggression on China, because as the last caller said, we do have Fort Detrick, Maryland. We know that the United States has conducted actual biochemical warfare on the world in history that we need to look at the more dangerous sources of this problem, which have legitimate evidence that we should be investigating. Um, and, and I think we should leave it at that. And we need to focus on pandemic containment. We need to focus on the pressing needs of humanity. Be getting caught up in a literal conspiracy theory that originated from the far right and still has no evidentiary basis, which is worth investigating further. Absolutely. And just to reiterate, my friends, we have to take care not to be caught up in these uh, imperialist lies, frankly. And, you know, it's good to read, but I mean, you know, you can read a lot and still not learn much. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. 
by any means necessary.